Welcome to Crawl Space. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there, all the listeners are doing great. But the big question, the money question is, how are you? Oh, thank you for asking. I am doing great today, Lance, and I am. I'm so excited to uh, to bring our audience this this interview, um, this introduction, I suppose, to this wonderful author named Mitch Horowitz, who has written some really compelling books. And the one that we focus on most today is called Occult America: The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. Yeah, that book is so interesting. Highly recommend that. And Mitch Horowitz was described by Filmmaker Magazine as a genius at distilling down esoteric concepts. And that is so evident in this conversation. I couldn't agree more with that. Go to MitchHorowitz.com and you can learn about him and what he does. He he does speaking engagements. He's a writer. He's given lectures. He's done podcasts. And he's just a cool dude. He's a righteous dude, Lance. You're not wrong. And uh, you can follow him at Mitch Horowitz on Twitter. And um, I think one reason you secretly really like Mitch is that David Lynch has written a quote about him, uh, called him solid gold, which uh, I would have to agree with Mr. Lynch. One of the very few times Tim Pillary agrees with David Lynch. <laughs> okay, so uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. Make sure to check out his books, in the, and there's a link in the show notes. But before we go to that interview, we need to tell you about a couple of things. One of them is our new subscription service where we are bringing our listeners ad-free episodes of Crawl Space. I, I know you're going to love that. People Sometimes people will complain about the ads, Lance. I mean, I love listening to the ads, but if you don't want to listen to them, all you have to do is subscribe to the new subscription service at crawlspace.supportingcast.fm. There's a link in the show notes, and you'll get all the episodes, the entire catalog, almost 300 episodes at this point, ad-free. And we also have a, an old Patreon show that we've done about 70 episodes of. That's all been uploaded there. That's all there, Lance. And we have a new show that we're bringing people. It is called The Crawl Space Crypt, which is a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what we do here at Crawl Space and the interviews we have. Right. So depending on which tier you elect to be a part of, you can get all that. Uh, you can bump yourself up a tier and get um, an opportunity to join a live Ask Us Anything. That'll be with uh, our cohort, Jen, you, myself. So that's one of those uh, benefits that you can get from a higher tier. We'll probably eventually start adding merchandise, but this supporting cast platform is amazing and we've moved from patreon because we want to offer the listeners something a little bit more special and the tools that we need to make that happen are pretty much exclusive with supporting cast so we're very excited about it because we get to i guess spread the proverbial wings and we were introduced to this by our new partners Glassbox Media, fantastic company. They help to refine your podcast brand. They help to sell ads. And Tim, this is what they call a big market segue. They are going to be representing themselves and their shows, their network of shows at CrimeCon at the end of the month. Tell the listeners what they've won. <laughs> I'm so glad you you made a smooth transition like that, Lance. Uh, <laughs> we are going to see them at CrimeCon at the end of April. April 28th through May 1st in Las Vegas, Lance. It is going to be an absolute blast. And our listeners can use code CRAWLSPACE at CRIMECON.COM when they check out purchasing their standard badge. 
So we will see you there. And we're going to do two live shows there. One Crawl Space live show and one missing show. That is going to be an absolute blast. We'll have the schedule for that very soon. Okay, everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode with Mitch. We're going to go to commercial right here. And we'll be right back with Mitch Horowitz, author of Occult America. Thanks a lot for listening. We are being joined now by author Mitch Horowitz. How are you today, Mitch? Doing great. Glad to be with you all. So cool that you were able to join us. Um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, you're... you're <laughs> Your catalog of writing is incredibly um, vast, and and you have so much. You've written, I think, seventy two thousand books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the one that came to our attention is uh, the one that Tim's got on his virtual background there, Occult America. That was the one that popped up, and uh, and I was like, Tim, you got to read this. It's kind of right up our alley, and and on Crawl Space, we don't just stick to true crime. We have uh, many different topics that we cover. And this is like right in our wheelhouse as far as like alternative topics. I would say that this this is right there for us. So um, we're excited. Uh, you can tell by my rambling that I'm super excited. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Occult America was my first book. It came out in 2009. That's what started it all, actually. It's, un it, it's, it's so cool. That was your first book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, such an interesting topic. Can you tell us why you decided to write about the, that topic? Well, I was always interested in the occult and paranormal from when I was a little kid growing up in the great borough of Queens in New York City. I would take out books on flying saucers and folklore and mythology and Bigfoot from my local library. And I wanted to know where did all this stuff come from? You know, I, I was aware even at a young age that Newspaper astrology was sort of an ersatz version of the ancient thing, of the real primeval thing, but it struck me as incredible that in the late 20th century, now early 21st century, modern people walk around, everyone can tell you his or her sun sign and something about it, and why should we know any of this stuff at all? And I wanted to kind of peel back the onion and ask where this came from. And in adulthood, I had the good fortune, which I wish for everybody, of being able to rediscover my childhood passions. And I realized that a lot of the founding figures in the contemporary occult, for all their greatness and, and foibles, and there was plenty of both, weren't really being written about historically in a responsible way. And I always tell people, if you don't write your own history, you get it written for you, and it might be written by people who don't share or understand the values that emanate from what you're interested in. So I decided I, I wanted to write the history of some of these figures. I wanted to write the history of how the occult and the esoteric impacted American culture in very visible ways. You know, what is that iron pyramid on the back of our dollar bill? What is Freemasonry that our grandfather or father used to belong to? why uh, did spirit mediumship and the suffragist movement kind of grow up hand in hand? Why do we know whether we're an Aquarius or a Sagittarius or a Libra? Why is all that still part of our world? And that's, that's what began the journey that resulted in Occult America. 
it's so full of these interesting facts that you typically don't think about. You just see, like you mentioned the eye on the back of the dollar bill that's above the pyramid, which is on the cover of the book as well. How often did any of us look at that and it was just there you know, before we were born, it's going to be there after we're gone and you just see it and that's it. What, what is it? I mean, let's just start there. Where, where did that come from? The Iron Pyramid is the reverse of the Great Seal of the United States, which was actually uh, commissioned uh, by the Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776, appropriately enough, in a committee that was chaired by Benjamin Franklin, himself a Freemason. And the Iron Pyramid, it's not a leaf, it's not a symbol directly out of Freemasonry, but it's Masonic inspired. It's this notion that worldly machinations uh, are incomplete unless somehow touched uh, by the eye of providence, unless somehow touched by the numinous. So you have the material pyramid and the all-seeing eye floating above it with this very enticing Latin slogan around it, annuit septus noos ordo seclorum, God smiles on our new order of the ages. At least that's a rough translation. And the truth is, most Americans were unfamiliar with the eye in the pyramid until 1935 because it didn't appear on the back of the dollar bill until Franklin Roosevelt and his future Vice President Henry Wallace, both Freemasons, decided to put it there. They thought it captured the ideals of the New Deal. They thought it would be a way of reconnecting the public with the best ideals of the founders. So although the symbol is as old as the nation itself, most Americans had no familiarity with it until 1935. And today, of course, we all know it insofar as we carry paper currency with us. We carry it in our pocket every day. So not as creepy as it looks, I suppose. Well, you know, I, I like a little bit of the creepiness factor, you know, to be frank. I mean, it is an occult symbol. It has a hidden meaning or an inner meaning that came out of, I think, the dedication that a lot of the founders had to Freemasonry. Washington was a Mason. Franklin, as I mentioned, Paul Revere. John Hancock, an outsized number of Washington's generals were Masons, an outsized number of the framers of the Constitution, signers of the Declaration. They were really well represented, and Freemasonry was the European movement that basically I see as the most radical esoteric outgrowth of the Reformation. I mean, they were trying to reignite, to reignitiate the search for meaning as it existed in some of the ancient civilizations, Persia, Rome, Greece, ancient Egypt, and they saw the New Republic as belonging to a chain of civilizations that protected the individual search for meaning, which I think is the best American value. So that's some of what I think you see imbued in that symbol. And it is a mysterious symbol in its way. And you mentioned earlier how spiritualism and the suffrage movement connected. That's something that is uh, super interesting to me. Can you uh, delve into that? Yeah, it's really a trip. And I tell you, you know, sometimes we ask ourselves, is there a hidden history? Is there an occult history? And there really is, but it's been neglected. It's occult or unseen only because it's too rarely acknowledged or understood. But basically, in a nutshell, in the late 1840s, early 1850s, a lot of Americans gravitated towards this movement called spiritualism, which involved seances and talking to the dead and piercing the veil to the other side. And it was a, it was a hugely popular movement for a time. And 
the really interesting thing historically was that most spirit mediums were women. And this was a huge breakthrough because in the mid 19, 19th century, women really couldn't have much of a formal voice at all in the civic or religious culture of the nation. So a woman who wanted to participate in the spiritual, political, social life of the nation could find that opening in spiritualism and become a religious leader of a certain sort. And so a huge number of women flocked into the movement of spiritualism. And this movement, it wasn't just people sitting in their kitchens with their arms interlocked around the table trying to contact grandma, although that was part of it, but it had its own clubs and newspapers and lecture societies. And if you were a spirit medium, you were looked to as a figure of some authority, at least within that world. So as it happens, this movement grew to prominence first in central New York State, outside of the city of Rochester. That's where that was the scene of the famous Rochester Wrappings in 1848, where uh, two adolescent girls living in a log cabin said they had worked out a method to reach the afterlife. So fast forward the following year, just about six months later, you saw the Women's Rights Conference at Seneca Falls, which was just about maybe 40, 50 miles down the road east of where the Rochester Wrappings had occurred. And a lot of the attendees a lot of the participants were also people who were involved with the spiritualism movement. In fact, there was probably two generations in the 19th century where you could not find a women's rights activist, a suffragist activist, who had not spent some time at the seance table and vice versa. Most mediums spent some time within the suffragist movement. It became, as much as it was a supernatural movement, it also became a religious, social, political opening for women and so there was a symbiosis between that movement and the spiritualist movement the two not only grew up kind of intertwined like a strand of dna but they grew up in the same neighborhood in in central new york state which was a real launch pad that particular area for everything that was new and novel in american life for a couple of generations in the uh, 19th century is it safe to say that america america really has a lot of roots in the occult yeah, I, I, absolutely, that's a defensible statement. You know, I mean, so many of the people who came to America early on were fleeing religious persecution or were in some ways religious radicals. And to be sure, not all of them were occultists. The Puritans were not occultists. <laughs> the Pilgrims were not occultists. But there were lots of early movements where there were things that we would call a cult that were going on within them, like within the Shaker movement, for example. I mean, the Shakers identified as Christians. They were Quakers back in England, in Manchester, England, where they were born. They were called the Shaking Quakers, and they were accused of witchcraft, and they were persecuted, so they made the dangerous journey along the Atlantic. They set down their earliest roots, uh, first in New York City, and later during the War of Independence, or just before, outside of Albany, New York, which is also, which is probably the easternmost outpost of this area of central New York State that was called the Burned Over District. It was considered burned over by the fires of the spirit. So you had the Shakers establishing a very early religious colony in America. You had other groups that, that came earlier, sometimes generations earlier, that established little mystical colonies around Philadelphia. You had groups that established mystical colonies in Rhode Island. Some of them moved to central New York State. So you had this religious ferment of people some of whom were persecuted minorities, some of whom were religious radicals, and they identified 
the American colonies early on as a safe harbor for people with radical religious beliefs. And their, their impact was immense. If your book was was the history book in school, I, I actually would have paid attention to history. <laughs> I'm always telling people that, you know, we, we take busloads of kids to Shaker Villages and say, well, here's a broom and here's a packet of seeds and here's a chair and here are some of the crafts that they were really great at. But we don't tell them that they were involved in seances and spiritual communications and they solicited messages from the spirits and they would talk about getting drunk on, on, on wine that was given to them phenomenally. These were spirit gifts. They said their, their hymns and their songs and their crafts were spirit gifts. And the Shakers were a really wild esoteric movement. And they would gyrate and speak in tongues and hold what we today would call seances and they would prophesize. And they were, in many regards, an occult movement. Somehow we never tell that to kids. You know, we just show them the packets of seeds and the brooms, and they're predictably bored. But they were a very wild, very radical movement in their way. Why is that? Why, why don't we teach that more? I, I, I often ask myself that question. I think the educators themselves didn't grow up on this history. I mean, even what I was describing about uh, spiritualism and suffragism. Nowadays, you'll probably start to encounter that stuff in women's studies programs. But I remember when I was first writing the book, it was not widely known at all. And I even had some people writing to me saying, hey, I was a women's studies minor and I never learned any of this stuff. And my attitude is, well, then you got to go get a refund, you know, from your professors <laughs> because they didn't know the background themselves. For a long time, you know, in lettered culture, anything that was occult or esoteric was considered off to the margins, was considered carnival stuff, was considered fringe, marginal at best, at best. And nowadays that's turning around. And so I suspect probably there's a current generation of people who are going into teaching or learning history who do know this material. But but even back when I was first writing the book, it, it was not widely known. Well, that brings up a question that I had um, I was going to ask later on, but it's a good segue, I think. When you started writing the book, how did you first begin to prepare and how do you how do you research it how do you reach out to say like to get information on the the freemasons cuz they're a secret society you know how, where do you start with all of this it's very heavy you know I, I mean when i first started the book first of all i thought a lot of the story was going to be centered in california because we think of california as kind of the engine for everything that's religiously novel or unusual in america and that has been true for over a century, but I was really surprised to find that it was in the burned over district, this area of central New York State that had this carriage path running through it, which today is 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 US Route 20. In fact, to this day, it remains the longest continuous road in the United States. It extends uh, from New England out to Eugene, Oregon. And that was a carriage path that was used to settle the nation. Some of US Route 20 today is, is what we call Boston Post Road. and this carriage path that cut through central New York State, one historian called it a psychic highway. There were so many different groups and ideas that sprung up around it. Uh, Mormonism came from central New York State. Seventh-day Adventism came from central New York State. Spiritualism, suffragism, America's earliest utopian experiments, all kinds of different mediums and channelers, and anybody who was looking for a congregation wound up at some point or another passing through or settling in central New York State, at least for a couple of generations. So that blew me away. That really surprised me because I had a sense of the burned over district, but I didn't know how central it really was. Later, 
partly through migratory patterns, that energy shifted uh, to California. The, California underwent a real economic boom around the First World War, and new people began to flow out there. Whenever, whenever you see population flows in the United States, that's where to look for the new religions, because people are moving to new places, they're uprooting themselves, they're leaving behind the congregations of their youth, the ties of their youth, they're leaving behind their extended families, and they are a ripe audience for new ideas. So that played out first in New York and New England, and then decades later that played out in the state of California where it has really taken up what looks like permanent residence. And you were asking about Freemasonry and such. You know, to get down to the details, not only can it be difficult because some of these organizations are secretive organizations and they're not accustomed, I'm not a Freemason, they're not accustomed to just welcoming outsiders or opening up archives, but there's a lot of mistakes in the history too. You know, people would write things down and you might see a report in a newspaper, it might seem reasonable, it might seem down to earth, and you find out that it's wrong. You just have to check and recheck your sources. Like for example, there's a, a largely black Freemasonic movement called Prince Hall Masonry that continues today. For years and years and years, the inceptive date of Prince Hall Masonry was given as 1775 because back in the day, somebody who was part of the Massachusetts Historical Society wrote down the date 1775 and it was pretty contemporaneous to that time. So it seems like a fair, reasonable primary source. It was wrong, it was wrong. There are Freemasonic historians that I'm friendly with who have really dug and dug, and they, they've post-dated it to three, three years later, 1778. And you'd think we would have these dates and these figures you know, pretty well down. You'd think we could get our arms around this stuff, but all history is tricky, and occult history especially so, and I had to check and recheck sources many, many times. You, you can never, trust the first thing you come upon, even if it seems authoritative. Okay, so with the Freemasons, is there anything really creepy going on there? Nothing creepy going on. Um, you know, Freemasonry emerged above ground in, in England in, in 1717. That was the year of the founding of the Grand Lodge of England. Prior to that time, and this is really interesting, no one has any consensus around how where or when masonry started, including Masonic historians themselves. And there are a lot of really outstanding historians that have emerged from Freemasonry and continue to today. And even within the order, there is disagreement about how this thing started, how this thing got underway. Now, the best answer I can come to is that during the Renaissance in Europe, there was a, a reignition of interest in occult and ancient philosophies. The term occult is from the Latin occultus, meaning hidden. And that term came into English usage in the early 1500s. And people were scribes and translators and clerics were rediscovering some of the ancient religious ideas from Egypt, Persia, Greece, Rome. And so there was a real flowering of interest in occult spirituality during the Renaissance. Then there was a very significant backlash against it. And that was partly marked by the outbreak of what we call the Thirty Years' War in Central Europe, which just ravaged Central Europe from 1618 to 1648. And there were a lot of complicated reasons for that war, similar to World War One. But to put it in the most basic terms, that war pitted Protestant against Catholic armies in Central Europe, and it reflected a huge backlash against occult experimentation in Central Europe that German-speaking swath of Europe bordered by, say, 
the Rhine Valley in the west and Bohemia and Prague in the east. That had been the area for occult experimentation. A lot was going on there. And you start to see just towards the tail end of the Thirty Years' War, sometimes earlier, sometimes earlier, but you start to see towards the tail end of the Thirty Years' War, people making their first references in diaries and journals to being inducted into Freemasonry. You start to see the first like really concrete references. So I think what occurred was that there were occult experimenters during the Renaissance who found that they needed to go underground because they were at risk for serious persecution. And their way of going underground was forming this occult esoteric fraternity where they could continue their explorations in a kind of clandestine atmosphere. And then it wasn't until 1717, as I mentioned, that they started to emerge above ground. And people were traveling across the Atlantic. So, so you had seedlings of Freemasonic lodges growing up in the American colonies. And I, I think probably it is the most, it's, it's a retention, it's a retention of some of the occult experimentation that went on during the Renaissance, but then had to go underground. And talk about mysterious, I mean, the tracks really are covered. You know, what I've described is just piecing together fragments. You know, we've got a, a reference here, a poem there, a diary reference there, where you start to see people making very clear allusions to being inducted into Freemasonry, but there's no founding document that says, well, here we are, and you know, you don't start to see that until they had come well above ground. So e even the origins of that group are mysterious. Well, I'm signing up uh, tomorrow to be a, uh, it's easy, right? You just sort of email them and, and uh, you give a couple of specs about yourself? You have to find a member, you have to approach uh, a Mason and say, hey, I'd like to join. And then they, uh, if they feel like it, can introduce you to their lodge and people people vote. And uh, if they vote affirmatively, you're in. You need like a password or something? Uh, there may be some lodges that employ passwords, but you know, more than anything else, you're expected to keep certain ceremonies private. Like, I I'm not a Freemason, but I I'm, I'm, a f I'm very friendly towards Masonry. And I've spoken at Freemasonic lodges. And even when I go to speak at a lodge, if it's a night where they're doing some sort of rites and rituals, you know, they will ask me, hey, could you please go cool your heels out in the vestibule or whatever? I mean, there, there, is, there is a privacy. What, what do you um, speak about when you go to a Freemason lodge? Usually at a Freemasonic lodge, I'll talk about the subjects that we're talking about right now, the occult history of America. So I might talk about Freemasonry among the founders. I might talk about Freemasonry among Washington's generals. I might talk about how some other European figures like the Marquis de Lafayette, who was the French hero of the American Revolutionary War, he was a Mason, his friendship with Washington, some of the things that those guys wrote about that we have preserved. And, you know, I'll talk about esoteric history usually. And it's pretty well received? Oh, yeah, overwhelmingly so, overwhelmingly so. Because Masons feel that they're misunderstood. And, you know, you turn this over to Alex Jones and he starts to spin out, you know, all this kind of ridiculous conspiracy stuff, which is a very kind of closed circuit way of thinking. And they want to be understood, not the compromise of privacy, but but they want to be understood. Is it fair to say that uh, a lot of Freemasons became a member because they're interested in the occult, or it's just kind of part of being a member? It's a mixed bag. You know, I mean, if you go back 
to, if you go back centuries, you know, you have a figure like the Marquis de Lafayette. He was interested in the occult, absolutely. So he entered from a more esoteric perspective. If you have a figure like Washington, I think probably his interest was more in masonry as an organization that defended the individual search, that defended the idea of separating church and state authority, that sought to divest authority from being passed on through, through bloodline, aristocracy, and so forth, which is why masonry was so threatening to the church and the aristocracy back in the old world. Nowadays, in the 21st century, there's a younger cohort that joins because they have real esoteric interests. For some people, you know, it's a social grouping, you know, it's an eating club, it's, it's, it's a fraternity. So it's a mixed bag, you know, among members. What do you think it says about us that a lot of our early leaders were really interested in the occult? And that isn't really at least present today, like publicly, either in today's politics or even just the knowledge of our original leaders. Well, it, it kind of mirrors very often, it seems to me, what's going on in places of power usually mirrors the demographics of what's going on in the country at large. So, for example, during the era of the mid-19th century, during the spiritualist era, I've crunched the numbers in occult America, and, and best I can tell, probably about 10% of American adults were interested in spiritualism to some greater or lesser degree. And, and you can arrive at that rough number based on membership roles, newspapers, clubs. You know, we were much more of a nation of joiners back then than we are today. Obviously, you know, today everybody's online. And on one hand, you know, 10% is, is, is a small fraction, but 10% is also a lot of people. And so in the book, for example, I write about seances in the Lincoln White House. Mary Todd Lincoln was a serious spiritualist. And, and she, after her husband's death, frequented spirit mediums, was a presence at the seance table. And there seems to, there's at least one dead to rights verified seance that Lincoln hosted in the White House, maybe two. And I don't think he was a committed spiritualist. I think he saw it as more of a novelty. And that that's something we have to remember too. For some Americans, this was just a novelty. You know, it was just something to try. Let's 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 just, you know, lower the lights and try a seance and see what happens. The fact that it went on in the White House is pretty significant. And so you find among people in power a kind of mirror image that you find among the everyday population. So if you've got 10% of people who are down with spiritualism across the nation, you're going to find some number like that among people who, you know, occupy the elite strata. I think that's true today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to say you have a recent-ish type anecdote about Ronald Reagan and his inaugural time. Can you, yeah, can you tell us about that? He was a trip. I mean, he was a trip because the Reagans spent 30 years of their lives in Hollywood, you know, working as actors or working in and around the Hollywood scene. And so they weren't out of step with their neighbors and with the other things that were going on. So Reagan expressed interest in astrology, numerology, tarot, as did Nancy Reagan, and this became a scandal in the second term of his presidency. But Reagan's first inaugural uh, as governor in California was timed to 12.10 p.m., which a lot of people thought was really, really weird. And there were these persistent rumors that he had tied it to 12.10 because it had some astrological pertinence, which was never proven. But there in the second term of his presidency, 
it came to light very publicly that Nancy was organizing his political and social calendar with the help of a San Francisco astrologer named Joan Quigley. So there it was. And the Reagans were friends with Jean Dixon, uh, a psychic. She's now deceased, but she used to be quite famous. And the weird thing is, this stuff is hidden in plain sight. In the mid-1960s, when Reagan was pondering his first run for governor, he did what a lot of aspiring politicians do, which is he wrote a memoir. It was called Where's the Rest of Me? And in this memoir, he said that one of his best friends was an astrologer named Carol Quigley. And Carol Quigley was an astrologer who lived in Santa Monica. He was the first astrologer and the last to appear on the cover of Time magazine in 1969. And there's Reagan writing his biography, preparing for a political career, preparing to run for governor, saying one of his best friends was Carol Quigley, this astrologer. That's not the kind of admission that people would make today, you know? And so if you just look in places where you don't think you're gonna find anything secret or anything that's not some sort of a market-tested, vetted, approved piece of information, you find surprising things. People will just let slip surprising things in the most unusual sources. So there's old Reagan, you know, talking about being pals with, with an astrologer, Carol Quigley. And he was quite famous, Quigley, at one time. Nobody, oh, Carol, uh, n n nobody knows, um, I'm sorry, I got his name wrong, Carol Ryder. I was confusing him with Joan Quigley, Carol Ryder. He was known as the Dean of American Astrologers, and, and he had, you know, daily newspaper columns. He was quite famous for a period of time. What's your take on astrology? Is that, uh, useful? Is it uh, BS somewhere in the middle? I think there's something there. You know, it, it's followed a very jagged, broken line from ancient Mesopotamia up through today. I mean, astrology is one of the oldest spiritual practices on earth, literally, that's remained continually practiced, which is kind of astounding. And so if you go back to the second, third millennia BC, you start to see the earliest vestiges of what we recognize as astrology taking shape in Mesopotamia. Then it passed into the Greek and Hellenic world. And in ancient Rome, around 150 BC, the, the techniques and the methods that we as modern people would recognize got codified. And it underwent a lot of changes, a lot of permutations, but it survived. It survived. And it's incredible to me that in our digital age, I don't think you could find a single person walking around who doesn't know his or her sun sign and couldn't offer you some keynote as to what it's supposed to mean, whether they believe it or not. I'm sympathetic to the astrology of a, a Carl Jung, a D.H. Lawrence, a Henry Miller. I think there's something there that represents a, a kind of a thumbprint of character. That's my perspective. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. That's an excellent way to put it, a thumbprint of a character. That's a great way to put it. Speaking of characters, you, you have a bunch of characters in the book, Occult America, who didn't really seem to have like they had a path in their lives. There were these individuals who 
didn't graduate from high school or or they were just sort of described as like unremarkable if, mm-hmm. if you will, like ac- academically, but then all of a sudden they have this calling. They they say that they've seen a vision or or they went on a journey and, and now they, they realize that they're able to captivate audiences. Uh, can you take us through some of those characters? Because they're super fascinating. Sure. You know, I think one of the reasons that the occult became so popular in the United States is that a lot of it emerged from the environs of very ordinary, very everyday life. You know, back in Europe, the idea of the occult was supposed to be elite and, you know, you had to belong to some secret society and there were initiations. It was very mysterious. Whereas here in the United States, for example, I mentioned earlier these two adolescent girls that instigated spiritualism, Kate and Margaret Fox. They were two adolescents living in a log cabin in a, a little town called Hydesville outside of Rochester, New York. They came from a Methodist household, and there were these bangs and raps heard throughout their cabin, and they told their shocked parents, well, mom and dad, guess what? We have figured out a code to communicate with beings from the spirit world. And all these different figures, newspaper editors, judges, reporters, ministers, descended on the cabin to investigate them and came away proclaiming, well, Kate and Margaret are telling the truth. And a lot of Americans were very turned on by this because I think the feeling was, wow, if these two adolescent kids from upstate New York living in a log cabin can contact the spirit world, it stands to reason that maybe I can too. And concurrent with that, there was a young guy, a cobbler's apprentice named Andrew Jackson Davis, who lived uh, southwest, uh, southeast of the uh, Fox sisters in the town of Poughkeepsie, New York, in the Hudson Valley. And Andrew... Uh, starting around age 17, said he was able to go into these trance states, these mediumistic trances or mesmeric trances. And in these trance states, he had out-of-body experience, he said. And he traveled to other realms and dimensions. And he traveled to the afterlife, which he called Summerland. And Andrew would come back out of these trances and deliver these vast, epic, metaphysical lectures and treatises. And... In the press, they made fun of him. They called him the Poughkeepsie Seer, as if to say, you know, who is this yokel who thinks that he's some sort of a biblical age prophet? But the irony was, Andrew, instead of running away from the joke, he embraced it and he started to call himself the Poughkeepsie Seer. And people dug it because, again, here was this uneducated farm kid from Poughkeepsie, New York, apprenticed out to a cobbler no formal education, probably just five months or so in a, in a co-ed schoolhouse in the Hudson Valley. And he was claiming to be this prophetic voice. And so he travels to Manhattan and he has trance sittings, seances. Some of the people who frequent the seances include Edgar Allan Poe, who seemed to sort of both despise and be fascinated by Andrew, and a, a Reverend uh, George Bush, who was an ancestor to the Bush presidential clan and at the time a very well-known biblical scholar and the press is writing about him and he's off and running. So again and again, you have these occult ideas coming from the lives of people who were very, very ordinary. And instead of turning people off, it was the total opposite. It seemed to turn people on. And the attitude was, hey, we can do this ourselves. So hence, seance clubs start growing and people start playing around with something they called the alphabet board or what we today call the Ouija board. 
And before you know it, you, you have a nation of these do-it-yourselfers who feel that they can, they can pierce the veil to the beyond. Unreal. I love it. <laughs> um, you mentioned out-of-body experiences. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. You know, you've got a figure like Andrew Jackson Davis, for example, who goes into these trances, comes out of these trances, and delivers these vast metaphysical lectures. And it's coming from somewhere. Now, Andrew was accused of plagiarizing the work of a, of a Swedish scientist and mystic named Emanuel Swedenborg. And it so happened that at the same time that Andrew began rising to prominence, Swedenborg's books had been translated prominently into English for the very first time. So, uh, of course, Andrew had an answer to that, and he said, well, naturally, Swedenborg is one of my tutors on the spirit realm. So, you know, you, you have these situations where there seems to be this, this trickiness, this subterfuge, you know, going on, and, and that's there, that's there. But at the same time, if you look at Andrew's books and his literature, I mean, they're just vast and they're just incredible. He was the one, for example, who in 1855, he coined the term law of attraction, which is used everywhere today. And he didn't mean it as this law of cause and effect. He meant that there's this cosmic law in which everything that goes on within our visible material world is mirrored in the spirit world and that the events, the manner in which you conduct yourself in day-to-day -day life is going to dictate the kinds of contacts you have in the spirit world and where you're going to go in the afterlife and so on. And so, you know, and, and that was just Tuesday morning. You know, I mean, he would just turn out ideas and concepts endlessly. So I can't speak to what was or whether there was any supernatural experience, but there was this unbelievable prolificness that, that came pouring out of these people that, that struck their audience as being very impressive. And there were principles that came out of these people that weren't explicitly political, but that people were digging. You know, so for example, Andrew says, in a trance state, I traveled to the afterlife, which he called Summerland. And without uttering a political word, he says, you know, in Summerland, you meet all kinds of people. You meet Jews and Catholics and people from tribes from all over the world and vanquished Native American tribes. And without explicitly saying it, what he's really doing is he's challenging the idea that salvation belongs to just one religion. So at that time, most Americans were some form of Calvinist Protestantism, Lutherism, Methodism. But here's Andrew coming along without being explicitly political and telling you, oh, guess what? Heaven is filled with people, including people from pagan antiquity, including Native American tribes, including people you know from different different dress and cultures and custom all around the world including Jews including Catholics so there was an undercurrent to it that some people really dug and and connected with and likewise the suffragist movement you know the idea that women could be mediums it 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 didn't present itself explicitly as political but it translated that way to some people so i can't speak to whether any of these folks were having actual extra physical experiences but what was coming out of them was really remarkable and was was fitting the needs of a lot of people at the time why is it that people are terrified of the ouija board yeah that's a wonderful question <laughs> i get more frightening stories about the ouija board than anything else you know if i'm on a radio show and the question turns to the ouija board all the callers want to know about the ouija board it's like <laughs> forget about george washington and suffragism and this and that and prince hall masonry we want to talk about the ouija board and people do have authentically creepy experiences 
through the Ouija board. It's really interesting. I mean, let's say you take the most materialist definition and you insist that the, 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 the user, him or herself, is moving the, the little plank, the planchette, around the board, and that's that. Okay, so let's grant that. What weird stuff is lurking in our subconscious if people are having all these frightening stories? Because people have just told me stories in total sincerity that are kind of blood-curdling. Sometimes they have physical elements to it, other times they don't. But it just makes you wonder what it is that exists in the folds of our psyches, even if you use the most materialist uh, interpretation. Demons. Demons. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Captain Howdy. <laughs> I mean, it was right. actually the, the movie The Exorcist in the early 70s that reignited people's interest in the Ouija board. I mean, the Ouija board, uh, the, the Ouija board goes back, the earliest references you'll find in newspapers go back to 1886. Uh, in northern Ohio, there was this big craze around what we call the Ouija board. They called it the alphabet board or the talking board or the witching board. And people in northern Ohio were really grooving to this. And... About five years later, a group of toy manufacturers in the city of Baltimore, they patented this device. And it's a tricky one, you know, because I'm not so sure you can patent a folk device. You know, I, I, I mean, there's a real question there, but that's, that's lost to the layers of patent law. Now, you know, going back to the Victorian age, but they, they succeeded in patenting it. They called it the Ouija board. Nobody can agree on where the name came from, of course, you know, typical piece of occult history. Everybody's got their own story as to where the name came from. And it became hugely popular. And then it would go in these waves. And usually during wartime, it would get more popular because people wanted news of lost loved ones. And then in 1966, the toy company Parker Brothers bought the rights to Ouija. And the next year, the Parker Brothers version outsold Monopoly. And then it faded a little, and then along comes the Exorcist movie, and you know, poor Reagan in the movie is playing around with the Ouija board, meets Captain Howdy, and things go badly, and the public is interested in Ouija boards again. And then, you know, it dips again, but then there's Ouija board franchise movies, and it rises again. So the Ouija board is the one and only object, the one and only occult technology from the age of spiritualism that is still with us today. It's pretty remarkable. I had said after reading that part in the book to my girlfriend who has two science degrees, oh, we should get a Ouija board. We don't have a Ouija board in the house. And she's like, there's no way we're keeping a Ouija board in this house. I'm like, what? <laughs> I know. And, I, and you're like, but, but you're a rationalist. You don't believe it. No. <laughs> yeah. You will, uh, it's, it's really funny. I, I remember once I was sitting around a table with a group of investment bankers and uh, it must have been a holiday. It was somewhere upstate in New York. And... Um, and so this group of hardcore rationalists, you know, guys who believe in numbers and actuarial tables and yearly bonuses, they said, you know, okay, uh, what's this occult stuff? You know, uh, um, prove it to us or give us something, you know, occult to do. And I said, okay, well, I'll tell you something, boys. There's this old folk belief, goes back to the American South, um, that a lot of people have heard some version of this. You go into the bathroom, you turn off all the lights so it's pitch, pitch black, you stare into the mirror and you say three times, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, come to me tonight. And I said, so if you guys are such hardcore rationalists, why don't one of you go and do that? And none of them would do it. You know, <laughs> There's a little reserve we all hold where we're rationalists, but like, well, you know, why play in traffic? You know? Yeah. Do you get that a lot? Someone saying like, oh, give us something occult to do. 
Yeah, I get it from time to time. The thing that is most interesting to me is that I'll speak to different groups of people, sometimes at art galleries, sometimes history museums, sometimes colleges, public schools. Once I was speaking to um, a physician's reading group and we took a little break and one of the guys from the group who seemed like he was having none of it you know, came up to me and he said, listen, I want you to know, you know, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but I gotta tell you, my wife had this premonitory dream once and he starts telling me about it and it's wilder than anything I had related. So when you get people in private and you get them away from their peer groups and their social gatherings and their Twitter following and everything, and you just talk one-on-one, -on -one, they'll share with you incredible episodes or stories and be very frank. And then when they go back into their group, they're more skeptical. You know, they show kind of a more public face of like, oh, I don't go for any of that stuff, you know. But in private, people are, people are very revealing. Now, tell me about the, um, the power of, of positive thought. And uh, I see that you've written a little bit. Some of your writings have been inspired by Napoleon Hill, who uh, wrote Think and Grow Rich, um, which I've always kind of said is is a basically a book about the occult, but no one ever really agreed with me. You're right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, contemporaneous with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, there were groups of Americans, mostly in New England, um, kind of growing out of the ferment of New England transcendentalism, who began to ask about connections between thought and event. And so they were interested in prayer healing and mind healing and thought causation. And whether by going into a kind of a trance state, you could in fact travel outside the body and, and whether there were correspondences, as Emanuel Swedenborg reckoned, between the unseen world and the seen world. And the term law of attraction, although it was out there, hadn't quite been remade yet took another generation into this kind of metaphysical law of cause and effect. But the seedlings were there, the questions were there, and in fact even Andrew Jackson Davis, the medium, used to talk about there being this great positive mind of creation from which everything emanated. So eventually Americans began to grok to these ideas and they formed into different little grouplets. And by late in the 19th century, you started to see what we today would recognize as the power of positive thinking or the secret or the law of attraction or what have you. And it was a very, very American philosophy. And it was a very homegrown philosophy. And I have to say, you know, these people in their own way had a tremendous instinct for stuff that we see today in placebo studies, in neuroplasticity, in mindfulness, in mind-body medicine, even in some of the theorizing that emerges from quantum mechanics or string theory. They, in their own language and in their own way, had this kind of foretelling instinct of a lot of stuff that gets talked about within our culture today, sometimes in very mainstream ways, like placebo studies, and sometimes within the outer reaches of theoretical physics, but they did have an instinct for something, and our conception as modern people of the mind, say of the past 150 years, has always expanded, it's never retracted. So we're, we're, we're learning more and more about the mind's effects. That could be said recently in the field of neuroplasticity, where brain scans are used to show that your thoughts will, over time, actually alter the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in your brain. No one challenges that data, it's not controversial, but the implications are controversial. And the implications are gonna be with us for a long time in terms of how do we understand this? What other, what other precincts of life can this be 
seen in, viewed in, understand in. What, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean for our understanding of brain biology? So that group had a really early grasp on some of these ideas and they, they had an instinct. They had an instinct. And then after the Great Depression, for example, when books like Think and Grow Rich got written, that was when this philosophy got made into this mass consumer philosophy, got rendered very popular. Although I always remind people that in Napoleon Hill's book, although you do find aspects of mind metaphysics, you also find a lot of doing, a lot of, a lot of rigor, a lot of overt activity. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's funny. I can always tell when somebody hasn't read Think and Grow Rich when they say, oh, that's like the secret. And it's not exactly like the secret. You know, the secret is very bound to this use of something called the law of attraction as this mental super law. And you find fragments of that in Think and Grow Rich, to be sure, but you, you also find a lot of can-do activities. And I think Napoleon Hill, he was brilliant in that he took a lot of these mystical strands and he repurposed them in a way to which everyday Americans could relate, as did Norman Vincent Peale, a, a conservative Dutch reform minister who published The Power of Positive Thinking in 1952. Peale, and that book is filled with mystical references. Every phrase that I've dropped from law of attraction to magnetism to going into trance states to you name it you can find it in that book but by and large peel's genius was that he remade mystical or occult language he reprocessed it through biblical language so that the church going public would be comfortable with it and you find that again and again in american history dale carnegie napoleon hill norman vincent peel tony robbins they will take stuff that at one time was very mystical and they will figure out a way to present it so that it's comfortable in business motivation seminars, corporate settings, and, and even church settings. And there's going to be a ton of like fraudsters and I guess charlatans that come out of this because you're saying all of these things sort of have this uh, ebb and flow or the, the swelling after a war, you know, like the, yeah. the Ouija board coming up in popularity because people are trying to communicate with their loved ones. And after the Great Depression, you have books on positive thinking because people know that they need to get out of this uh, current state. Who are, who are some of the like the did you ever encounter any like actual frauds when in your research? Well, it's a really interesting question. There is a lot of fraud, and there's no question about that. I mean, especially the spiritualist movement started to get very pockmarked by fraud, especially in the 1870s when you had a lot of physical spiritualism going on. And today, there's a lot of people who brand themselves to corporate America and to everyday individuals as channelers and psychics and mediums and so forth. I have met very, very few who I thought were dead to right frauds. They are out there. More often what happens, and it's really, really hard to understand American religion in general if one doesn't understand this, there's a mixture of guile and sincerity, and I encounter that a lot. For example, I wrote a piece for Politico about the career of the televangelist Oral Roberts. He was one of the original televangelists. And a lot of people during Oral's lifetime were like, oh, this guy's a phony, this guy's a fraud, this guy's a fake. He engages in faith healing, he engages in uh, pray and grow rich type philosophies. And he's a perfect example. He's not an occult figure by any means. But he took some of these mystical ideas, he reprocessed them through, through charismatic Christianity. And within his life, I think even his, his, his most vociferous critics, if they're informed, would acknowledge that, again, there was this mixture of guile and sincerity, guile and sincerity. 
And I think you find that running again and again and again through these really hands-on or practical variants of American religion, including the occult. So I, for example, have encountered psychics who once in a while will just get these extraordinary hits that don't come from cold readings or what have you. I, I know how to do a cold reading. And then other times they'll just come up with stuff that's just garbage, you know, it's just flat out wrong. And you're left saying to yourself, is this a sincere person? Is this a cynical person? What's, what's going on here? Is there a real rapport? Is there just fee, fee for service by the hour? And the difficult answer is, and the answer that a person has to learn to live with if you want to understand this culture, is that it's paradoxical. You, you, you not infrequently have, have mixtures of both. We've done a variety of uh, shows over the course of several years, missing persons and um, cold cases and, and episodes uh, that deal with all sorts of spiritualism and things of that nature. And we've never needed anyone who practices hypnotism until like the past week. All of a sudden we need like three, three people need to be hypnotized and we've been doing this for years. And then all, all out of the blue, so we've had people say, you know, oh, if I could just like go into a good hypnosis, uh, what's your theory on hypnosis? And do you know a good one? Are you a hip hypnotist? <laughs> oh, I'm not a hypnotist. I, I know certain very good ones. Not everybody is susceptible to hypnotism, but for those people who are susceptible, it can, it seems to me that it can tune out the background noise and allow people to get in touch with things that they might otherwise only get in touch with in dreams, for example, but not remember them. Dreams and hypnosis have a lot in common. I've had, as I'm sure everybody listening has, the most incredible experiences in dreams that make you ask yourself, wow, how glacially deep does my mind go? Uh, here's an example, and it's kind of a funny example, but it's just the truth. When I was a little kid, very little kid, I used to love watching reruns of the show Lost in Space. I don't know if you guys remember that, but... And Lost in Space had this very infectious theme song at the beginning. I could obviously go look it up on YouTube, but I never have, and I haven't thought of or remembered that theme song for decades, decades. One night I was dreaming and I vividly remembered hearing that theme song in the dream and I woke up and I could, I could hum it to myself. I could hear it as clearly as you hear my voice right now. But as the day and its various stresses and needs uh, took precedence, I forgot it. I forgot it and I cannot remember it. And I purposely don't go on YouTube to look it up because I want to see if the experience will repeat itself. If you ask me to recall that theme song right now from when I was four years old, I could not do it. But in a dream state, I did do it. So that glacial memory, whatever you want to call it, that subconscious memory is still there. If I were susceptible to hypnosis and had a good hypnotist, he or she could probably bring that out of me the way a dream state brought it out of me. It was still there. But we forget. We forget. So I think hypnosis can, can be very useful in that way. Good answer. Yeah, this is, uh, sorry, I know we're kind of bouncing all over the place. I think you're just such a wealth of info on all this stuff. Um, and I do want to ask about um, your new book in a moment, but I can't let the opportunity ask about synchronicity. I, I can't let this moment pass um, because the this hypnotist thing just happened. And tell, tell us, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's funny. Carl Jung coined the term synchronicity, and Jung was a genius. But 
I have to say that Jung would also sometimes employ a clinical term without it really explaining anything, but thereby saying, well, now we know what to call it, and so we can all relax, <laughs> and it would make us feel like, oh, it's a synchronicity, I get it, you know, but it actually doesn't explain anything, you know, an a-causal uh, series of events that doesn't actually tell us what's going on. But there are these extraordinary moments, and I've written about some of them, uh, sometimes in my own experience, where something will happen that is so emotionally meaningful, there's no statistical way of measuring it. Uh, materialists uh, or, or skeptics like talk about the law of large numbers. The law of large numbers dictates that we're such a large human population that weird things have to happen to somebody. So running into our long lost friend on a secluded beach in Hawaii is not as strange as it sounds because if you crunch it out over the population, and there's truth to that, but there's also a big gaping hole in that. And that is what statistics are not good at measuring is the emotional impact that you feel in your own life in terms of coming into contact with that friend. Maybe that friend was somebody with whom you had an argument and you always regretted it and you always felt you owed that person an apology and you're thinking about that person at that instant that he or she comes walking up to you. That is really, really hard to measure. Emotional impact and personal meaning are incredibly hard to measure. So when we start to talk about synchronicities and people relate experiences that have made lifelong emotional impacts on them, it's really hard to get at those numbers. They're, they're incredible. And, and we have a term, you know, synchronicity, but it doesn't tell us what's going on. It, it's still, it, it, we're, we're just on our knees looking through a keyhole. We can understand the correlation. We can understand the meaning of it. We can understand something about the inexplicable rarity of it, but the mechanics are very mysterious. You just made a mistake by saying we're on our knees looking through a keyhole because I'm going to, I'm stealing that and using it. <laughs> As much as possible. That is, okay. that is a great visual. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> yeah, Thanks. That, it makes a lot of sense, too. Please, uh, let us, please tell us about your new book, your upcoming book, Daydream Believer. This book, Daydream Believer, is very imper personally important to me because you referenced Napoleon Hill, and I am very interested in mind metaphysics and the positive uses of the mind and the question of there being correlations between thought and event, sort of like what we were just discussing with synchronicity. And this field of mind power, mind metaphysics, call it what you will, it always did a better job of popularizing itself than it did of refining itself. So the books came hot and heavy. You know, you had books like How to Win Friends and Influence People, Think and Grow Rich, Power of Positive Thinking, The Secret, Power of Your Subconscious Mind, lots of others. That ideology did a great job of popularizing itself. It did not do a great job of refining itself. It never came up with a theology of suffering. It never came up with a really convincing, persuasive way of addressing failure. We love to talk about when it does work. We don't love to talk about when it doesn't work. And my conviction is that there's more than just happenstance going on there. I think these people had their arms around something very real. But this philosophy also needs to grow up. We're dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with end-of-life issues. We're, we, we've all witnessed tragedies happening on a macro scale or on an intimate scale. They're, they're just not explicable by any easy down-pat law. So I'm delving into a lot of different areas of mind-body medicine, theoretical models like quantum theory, string theory, uh, psychical research, which I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in academic, academically based uh, ESP research. And I'm trying to come up with a theory 
of why there's a correlation between mind and event and why there's not and why there's not. I think the whole law of attraction thing is not mature enough. It, it, we don't live under one mental super law. We experience many different laws and forces. And we have to digest that, but it's fantastic enough that there could be a correlation between thought and event. That alone is fantastic enough. So in Daydream Believer, that's the territory that I'm seeking to mine and, and, and refine. Yeah. All right. That, that's going to be great. Yeah. When is that due out? Can't wait. That's coming out in July, but if, if anybody's interested, it's up for pre-order right now on Amazon. Oh, great, great. Um, I, I just have one more, well, actually kind of two more questions. Uh, you're big on spirals. There's a spiral on your website. There's a spiral <laughs> behind you. Um, so my question is, uh, what's your what's your thing about spirals? And also, I was Googling what your shirt means, and I can't find it. You know, well, my shirt was designed by a very brilliant artist named Jesse Draxler. He's a friend of mine, and I don't know what it means. He gave it to me as a gift. I, I never asked him. I totally dig it. Uh, I can ask him, and perhaps I'll reveal it if I come back on the show. <laughs> um, and as far as spirals, uh, I guess it, it's it's both random and meaningful. It's meaningful because I'm into a philosophy called Hermeticism, which is an ancient Greek-Egyptian philosophy. And the, the outlook of Hermeticism is that everything emanates from this one great overmind and expands in concentric circles throughout creation. But it so happens that um, my partner, uh, Jacqueline Castell, who's a film director shooting a movie in Canada right now, um, very sweetly got me as a background for my studio these, these spirals, which match up perfectly with Hermeticism. And so we were just off and running from there. So everything, everything became spirals. 